Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Ignaz Kalpakas, Associate Professor at the Department of Public Communication at the Vitautas Magnus University in Lithuania to discuss his recent book, Algorithmic Governance, Politics and Law in the Post-Human Era, published in 2019 with Palgrave Macmillan. Welcome to the show, Ignaz. And I'm very happy to be here, so thank you for hosting me. <laughs> So to set the frame a bit, algorithms govern our everyday lives in a myriad of ways, from determining which information we see, which commercials target us, to deciding if we are creditworthy, whether we get a chance to be hired, or as in the case of many platform workers, whether we get fired. We are rated and we rate others. We build behavioral nudges into our technologies. We optimize the other and we keep tracking and optimizing ourselves. Big data, with their promise of data-driven and real-time decision-making, are transforming the ways in which we govern our societies and ourselves. Surveillance, monitoring and self-policing have become ubiquitous. Shoshana Zubov speaks of the age of surveillance capitalism, where data is the new oil and where futures are monetized. Cathy O'Neill has been warning of the dangers of these weapons of math destruction built on dirty data and driven by concrete political and economic interests, pointing to the consequences of their mass deployment, such as the emergence of new forms of inequalities and reinforcement of old ones, and proliferation of new forms of algorithmic injustice. The COVID-19 pandemic has been managed by governments worldwide through often extreme, ad hoc and unpredictable measures, further revealing the underlying logic of algorithmic governance, where techno-optimism merges with technocracy. Relying on real-time data, statistical modeling of possible futures, and on the seductive aesthetics of purity and simplicity of the endless graphs, numbers and risk predictions, new regulations and prohibitions are imposed and others withdrawn on a continual basis. As I see it, this form of governance profoundly unsettles our traditional conceptions of the law and legal frameworks. It results in law that is personalized, much like a targeted commercial, granting access to certain goods for some while restricting access to others, and a legal landscape that is dynamic and hence, to far greater degree, unpredictable. This creates further existential insecurities and anxieties in a world, rather paradoxically, hyper-focused on security and securitization of all there is, including health. In my view, this results in a short-term, technocratic, evidence-based and expert-driven politics, or rather, the absence of politics proper. Ignaz, so, your book unpacks precisely this underlying logic of algorithmic governance, analyzing the meanings of politics and law in what you deem the post-human era. Could you explain in kind of broad strokes how big data, the logic of platform economy and algorithms are transforming politics and law? You speak in this context of hybridization of governance. What do you mean by that? First of all, it is becoming impossible to uh, separate uh, traditional governance functions from uh, datafied ones. And this is deeply problematic because governments are increasingly relying on database algorithmic tools Uh, provided to them by private companies uh, to carry out everyday governance uh, functions. That could be things like predictive policing, for example, or in the case of <clears throat> the COVID-19 pandemic, contact tracing and, and uh, movement tracing as well. 
And the problem uh, with those things is that uh, usually governmental uh, governance measures, they can be contested politically, whereas those uh, public-private partnerships, they very often are not contested politically, even though they have very direct political and social effects. Uh, think of, let's say, predictive policing and uh, certain communities being targeted uh, by police action disproportionately simply because there is some random pattern in data that might indicate uh, their members are more likely commit, uh, to commit crime, even though that uh, may more adequately represent deprivation or, or some intrinsic societal biases rather than their real propensity to crime. So uh, there's a very deep problematic in this absence of political contestation of uh, decisions that are very political in their practice. And then the second issue uh, that I see as very problematic is uh, the reliance of data itself. And uh, I think, again, in many states, we have explicitly seen that in the context of the COVID pandemic, uh, where governor, governments typically pride themselves in saying, you know, our decisions are not political. They're based on data. They're based on statistics. They're based on some kind of algorithmic models predicting the spread of the pandemic and so on. And what is lost in that usually uh, is the human dimension. And uh, that can very often be counterproductive, for example, in relation to lockdown measures where, you know, it might seem that an imposition of a third, fourth, fifth lockdown uh, might be beneficial from a pure data analysis point of view. But when you lose the human dimension, the human tiredness of all of that thing and, and uh, the diminishing likelihood that people will obey the regulations, again, that can become counterproductive even for the government itself, let alone um, kind of disempower uh, individuals who are seen just uh, as uh, elements within uh, various statistical measurements and predictions. So we're kind of reduced to that statistical data pattern and uh, any kind of human dimension, any element of free will is lost in the process. So these are very good observations. And I'm thinking also here, it's not only the human that is being lost, but it is also a kind of bigger picture, a principal discussion about what, 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 about rights, about politics as such, right? So the politics itself basically disappears, I would say. Uh, and on another note, uh, what also disappears is, 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 is literally humanity. <laughs> it's not only the consideration of the human as human, but humanity as such. I think in the sense that we become, or we are, encouraged to perceive the other as a number, right? We see it also in academic practice. I mean, uh, the age index and, and similar forms of measurements, the research gate, uh, whatever, uh, the number of publications you may have. You're constantly forced to perceive the other through a certain metric, right? So we, in that sense, live in a kind of metric society. Uh, and I think that this, this kind of uh, insistence that we should perceive the other through a number or as a number or reduce the other as a, to a number is profoundly dehumanizing in this sense. So I think we can move uh, 
to unpack, uh, move forward to unpack the logic of algorithmic governance further. And uh, and you've you've kind of touched upon it, but in your book you offer a quite uh, enlightening definition uh, of what algorithmic governance is. And you write algorithmic governance, the increasingly prevalent form of governance in this digital world, is characterized by its tackling of problems through their effects rather than their causation. Instead of disentangling the multiplicity of causal relationships and getting to the root of every matter, this form of governance is intent on collecting as much data as possible in order to establish robust correlations. In other words, instead of decoding underlying essences, this mode of governance works by way of establishing connections, patterns, and no less crucially, predictions. This attitude that prides itself on replacing causes with trends has also the effect of altering the place of human persons, effectively objectifying and commodifying them, turning them into data generators where the data footprint is all that matters and is taken for the person. So you've touched upon this in the context of predictive policing already, because this is precisely what we see there. We ignore the causes, we look at the correlations and so on. We are far less likely to to address the causes. And this is quite paradoxical, I would say, in a system where basically sets the premises, this kind of algorithmic governance as the premises for, for the life to unfold, uh, but at the same time undermines any kind of discussion about those premises. <laughs> So maybe you can uh, elaborate on that. So the problem here lies in the at the very heart of how big data analysis works. I mean, it works by decoding patterns, by establishing correlations, uh, but by exo- uh, ignoring causation. And uh, you know, as we as academics know, as probably as any first year student knows, ignoring uh, causation. Um, and focusing on correlation only might lead to very skewed results. Uh, So um, in some cases, that can lead to, uh, let's say, further perpetuation of bias. Uh, Because, uh, well, let's imagine um, an app that uses company data analysis to assist in hiring decisions. And uh, let's assume that... uh, The company is primarily staffed by men, as often happens, for example, in tech companies. Um, And so the app analyzes company performance data, and and it it determines that uh, there's a correlation. Most of the high-performing employees, because there are only men working. So uh, the app then... um, screens job applicants and uh, uh, basically rejects most of the female applicants because they don't fit the pattern, which means that the company is hiring disproportionately more males. Uh, Then uh, the app is again screening performance data and it sees that even more highly performing employees are men. So it even further uh, alters its algorithm to suggest that, well, actually you only hire men in order to get high-performance employees, and so on and so forth. The same with predictive policing, right? Let's imagine that, uh, well, it's not an imagine, it's a real situation, that most predictive policing algorithms target uh, immigrant communities, or in the United States, uh, black communities, much more than they do uh, white communities. And so uh, police are 
more often dispatched to, let's say, black communities, which means that the number of uh, um, police dispatchments is uh, recorded in the system, then uh, the algorithm says, okay, there are more police dispatchments into predominantly black neighborhoods. Therefore, we must dispatch even more police to black neighborhoods, which means that the algorithmic score for danger of black neighborhoods is even further increased, and it just perpetuates bias further and further and further, simply by working on correlations rather than causation. Um, and um, if we do that, uh, we not only perpetuate bias, but we are also kind of um, raising important philosophical questions, I think, about the nature of the human person and whether the human person can actually be reduced not only to the past data footprint of him or herself, but also to the footprints of those who are deemed similar to him or her. And uh, so we're kind of uh, lost once again as humans with free will, with decision-making capacity and with unique qualities. And uh, what matters is the footprint that we have left and that others who, for whatever reason, have been grouped into the same category uh, have left uh, before us. Indeed, and, and this arbitrariness of categorization is there, right? The data is uh, dirty, many have argued, and so on. But when it comes to these uh, these kind of arguments about uh, bias and uh, ethics, they, they come uh, themselves from Silicon Valley, right? Uh, they, they argue that, well, we are aware that the data is biased and so on, but, uh, but we just need more data. So the proposed solution is that we just collect even more. And when we have more of this data, then the results will be better. The facial recognition will not fail uh, so often on black people, for instance, but it will fail less. It will maybe achieve 99% of accuracy. So that must be a good thing, they say. Uh, well, we can correct this bias, right? So so a lot of this kind of critique uh, is positioned at the level of criticizing the, the effects of the of biases that lie in the data. And of course, we can say the data is not neutral. The data is, is, uh, is collected with a certain purpose, then used for another purpose, and so on. There is nothing like raw data, raw data is oxymoron, right? So so, so all, all these things we as critical social scientists especially uh, know, and, uh, and, and so we do not fall for this uh, idea that the more data will probably uh, solve the issues. But this is the one solution that is being sold, uh, that, uh, that this kind of uh, massive data collection will lead to a, a, almost a better world, a kind of utopian space where, where everything can be accurately measured and accurately optimized so what do you say to this type of uh, this type of argument that uh, that that more will be better <laughs> it's yes oh almost has become an ideology which is even sometimes referred to in the literature as solutionism or techno solutionism uh, where you know let, let's uh, do more of the mess that we have caused and somehow more of that mess will cause less mess uh, which is kind of illogical <laughs> in the first place. Um, then with regards to simply collecting more data, um, well, this argument itself is based on the premise that all social groups have equal access to technology, 
that they are equally represented in all settings, including um, access to social services, including um, employment. Because again, if we have already biased employment conditions and we collect more data about those biased employment conditions, then the data will still be biased, probably even more biased. Uh, so this argument would only work if we would already have a completely egalitarian uh, society with full access of everyone to everything. And then we're kind of um, simply encoding that in data. Plus, uh, I mean, one thing that data do is, well, they reflect the society on which uh, the data are collected and uh, which they represent. And uh, this argument would kind of imply a society in which biases don't exist. And uh, as far as I'm aware, there is no society in which no biases exist. And so uh, what would happen if we collected more data is, well, we would represent pre-existing biases even better, which is not a particularly good solution to my mind. We need to have tools to counter existing biases, to um, kind of think about greater equality, greater access, and not to reproduce what we already have, because what we already have is clearly not working for large groups of people. Indeed. And that's, that's a very fitting uh, analysis. Uh, let us move to another uh, related topic of surveillance. Um, you're, you open your book with the lyrics of the song uh, Every Breath You Take by the police. <laughs> I really enjoyed it uh, because it becomes a rather sinister song upon a closer inspection uh, where every move and every breath is surveilled. And uh, today we have apps probably even for surveilling breath and health and so forth. Uh, in the context of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, we have then seen a dramatic increase of surveillance technologies that are sold uh, to governments, to, to corporations, uh, uh, to employers. And we've seen a, a rather troubling increase, for instance, of many things, but <laughs> for instance, of intrusive products for workplace surveillance, monitoring, and for managerial control. Uh, we are increasingly not only encouraged and nudged to reveal ourselves, as of course this architecture demands that we share and that we like and that we reveal uh, all, all these uh, all these things about ourselves freely that we upload on YouTube and that we upload on all these platforms. So we are to be a transparent subject by our own will to say to say so, but now we are increasingly, I feel, uh, coerced uh, to be transparent to to companies, governments, employers, and others. Uh, who on their part remain rather opaque, right? So while we are to be transparent to the system, let's say, or uh, however we want to call it, uh, those in power rather prefer privacy uh, and, and so on, despite all these uh, claims to transparency of how things are managed and so on, we see that when you try to dig deeper, it is uh, rather the opposite. Um, so so there is a certain idea that we should uh, we should kind of not care of our privacy as, as data subjects, as, as, as citizens and so on, uh, while privacy uh, and, and kind of abandon the idea of privacy itself, privacy becomes something that is maybe 
connected to, you know, the criminals who want to be private, right? They have something to hide. If you don't have anything to hide, why, why would you uh, ultimately be interested in, in, in not revealing yourself <laughs> and so forth? And we see that privacy is becoming a sort of luxury, right? Only the very rich uh, in their maybe 1% bunkers can uh, disconnect from the net and, and, and do something in, in private and becomes extremely difficult to communicate, uh, especially now, uh, privately, when everything can be monitored. Um, and, and so I, I wanted you to think a bit about uh, this kind of relation between surveillance and I would say coercion to reveal yourself. Uh, and, and where no longer we see this uh, this kind of happy, let's say, capitalism, happy digital space where, you know, we had some ambitions towards, uh, oh, this will be a space of freedom, this internet and so on. And now it's kind of getting more and more sinister, at least in my view. <laughs> yeah, well, to some extent, uh, one could say that there's nothing entirely new in that because the current idea of privacy as we understand it uh, today is, what, 150, maybe 200 years old. And if we look uh, further back, it was just as well. Only the very rich who could afford privacy because they could afford homes large enough to have separate bedrooms, for example. Uh, most of the society lived, you know, the entire family in just one room and, and, and you couldn't be private in any way uh, in that sense. So uh, uh, privacy as a luxury of the rich is already something that we uh, as humanity have experience of. And uh, to some extent, I would agree that we are kind of uh, moving back uh, to that particular condition. Um, and in terms of transparency, yes, we are becoming transparent by default, essentially. And I would connect uh, back to something that you mentioned earlier about uh, people being reduced to scores, to numbers. That is well known to academics, of course. Uh, but, uh, you know, think of Uber drivers or think of uh, uh, various platform workers from Amazon's Mechanical Turks to whatever. And I think this uh, um, reduction of individuals to performance scores you know, is ubiquitous in, in the society. And it is um, kind of the... Uh, increasingly, the, the basic condition under which uh, we live and um, a condition which kind of uh, can be used um, as a disciplinary tool on society in general, but also on individuals um, on, on, on a personal scale. So that is um, uh, really something that we have to be concerned and wary about. Um, but in terms of us as users of technology, indeed, we are effectively being reduced to data generators. And that, that is essentially our economic and so social functionalities, to be generators of data and then consumers of database products. So, so that, 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 that's uh, who we are today. And that is where the technology is going from uh, smartphones to Internet of Things to emerging technologies such as virtual reality. I mean, uh, these are essentially data collection tools that then enable new products to be offered to us 
uh, that are based on the raw resource which we ourselves have produced. So we produce the resource and then we consume the uh, result um, of, of the product of uh, that raw resource that uh, we have ourselves produced. So we, we are kind of both producers and consumers in that sense, but um, the money goes to somebody else. Indeed. <laughs> I would like to return a bit to, to the question of uh, workplace uh, surveillance because you mentioned this uh, uh, performance management. And of course, the idea of... Uh, scientific management uh, is very potent within all this kind of algorithmic archi architecture, right? Uh, so we kind of maybe are seeing a return of, well, not a return, an extension of uh, Taylorism and these kind of ideas of time management. We see it with all these technologies for uh, measuring how, many, how much time you spend on your email, on interacting with teams and on this kind of data analytics that, again, is supposed to provide certain kinds of insights to to your boss maybe or to even to yourself right we are we are very likely to monitor also ourselves we are sold all these productivity products uh, and so on so this idea of of scientific management and even micromanagement of almost every minute you have in a day is there and uh, maybe one in one way we are coerced by the by by the by the employers to to behave in those ways but on the others we are also a little bit i feel seduced by that uh we we kind of like to keep control uh maybe you know this kind of control is in that sense uh, a little ambiguous because you could say in a certain way that, this, that the world is becoming increasingly complex or has become increasingly complex, uh, impossible to navigate for many people, impossible to challenge politically or, or in, in, in certain ways. So the control of the body, of the self, of your time is possibly the only control left in a certain sense. Paradoxically enough, you rely for, on, for that control on, the, on these tools. But, uh, but, but so, so how would you think about social control uh, in relation to these technologies and to this kind of uh, uh, desire of people themselves for, for these tools? Because it's not only that these are imposed, but, but there is a certain dynamics between, uh, between this coercion and pleasure, I would say. I would agree that we are kind of sold a fantasy of control uh, and of self-adequacy uh, in this world that we just cannot control. Uh, we still live um, in a world that we perceive in those very anthropocentric ways that you know we as humans are at the pinnacle of everything, that everything in the world is kind of uh, um, ours to take to have as a property, to exploit, and so on. Uh, but increasingly, that worldview kind of uh, is disjointed from practice where we feel like we are somehow being left behind. We really don't get what's going on and, and how can we be at the center of the world when we just can't understand what's happening around us and we can't control many of the things that we have ourselves unleashed. Um, and in that sense, uh, various self-tracking technologies um, or performance management tools and so on, they are indeed uh, selling us this idea that, yeah, we can take back control. Take back control uh, is a very good slogan, of course, and very effective, as, as Brexit has shown. Uh, but we are kind of taking back control in an imaginary way 
um, with the use of all of these apps and, and tracking tools from fitness tracking to productivity tracking to kind of optimize ourselves. Because again, if everything can be uh, measured in numbers, our performance can be measured in numbers. So yeah, why not measure, measure ourselves from the number of steps made every day to the time spent on various uh, apps and uh, uh, how much work have we accomplished in that amount of time uh, while using that particular app and, and how does that equate over particular periods of time and how that compares to our colleagues. That, that's also um, a more important thing. Uh, it's, again, both disciplinary and competitive as well. It's kind of partly gamification of performance, uh, kind of playing on that competitive uh, drive that uh, we have uh, as human individuals. So it's got all kind of interrelated and interconnected, uh, I would say, uh, with this uh, loss of a sense of control, but at the same time, desire to take it back. Yeah, either take back control or to make ourselves great again, to use another political slogan. Indeed, you touched upon gamification, and I think this is uh, this is also extremely relevant here, where we are increasingly made uh, to think of the world as a sort of game, right? We are to collect uh, badges and uh, and become engaged, and our attention is to be grabbed, and so on. You see it extremely well in in uh, our own academic practice, right? Where we have. Uh, where whenever you uh, get uh, to 1,000 reads on your ResearchGate account, it sends you a message or, or you get a nice badge. But I think in even more kind of uh, sinister ways, we keep thinking of you know winning grants uh, and so on. It, it is always a kind of a game, uh, this academic practice, right? It is uh, you level up when you become a full professor <laughs> and so on. So, so there are these ranks that you have to climb and so on. And, and, and indeed being reduced to a certain number allows for this kind of comparison, as you nicely mentioned. And uh, here we can see that it is not only individuals we compare ourselves between our colleagues, but it's also the institutes that compare uh, each other, right, within the same institution. We are to compete for the resources announced by the same institution. So we are to effectively compete with our closest colleagues for, for very scarce resources. We are to compete universities within one country with each other we are to compete between universities globally right uh, on global rankings and all these global rankings come with funding systems come with uh, come with incentives and so on uh, and and this creates a kind of a very perverse uh, world i would say in norway we have uh, the research council of norway which incidentally funds several of our projects, but nonetheless, so we can allow ourselves some critique. <laughs> and uh, they have uh, an indicator report. And a part of the indicator report is, for instance, uh, the number of uh, articles, academic articles per thousand inhabitants. Uh, so Norway has uh, uh, roughly three articles, I think, per thousand uh, inhabitants. And then we can rank the countries. So we, we rank as the fourth country in the world on, on this uh, sort of uh, metric. <laughs> so it, it creates almost uh, almost an absurd uh, world, right? Where everything that can be measured is measured uh, for no 
purpose at all. Well, what, what what does it tell us? Well, it tells us about the inequality, maybe uh, that you know if you compare yourself to India, you probably will score higher if you're Norway. Uh, it has something to do with the number of uh, inhabitants <laughs> and other uh, other uh, other uh, things. But <laughs> so so it becomes almost absurd. But it at the same time, and I think it's it's kind of for us, it is very easy to see in in the academic context. It creates a certain moral economy of fraud. It is not only that. We that everything is gamified and we are to perceive it as a game, but as a consequence, we are also very likely to to game the system, right? If 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 the metric is what counts, then I can be perfectly cynical and pragmatic, and I can pursue my career and and target uh, split my articles or my my ideas into uh, uh, more articles or or write with a kind of citation mafia if I want to. Uh, I can I can engage in all sorts of kind of uh, uh, unethical, semi-ethical, dubious practices. And we see, for instance, that the market for predatory uh, journals and publishers is expanding enormously, uh, precisely as a consequence, I would say, of this form of governance by numbers, right? Uh, so we see, I would argue then, a certain uh, moral economy of fraud that is that is inherent to this type of system based on these types of incentives that are quantified, right? When the quality no longer matters and only quantity and the measurements and, and rankings matter, then it is kind of natural and of its own that it leads people to, if they they if they benefit from from gaming the system, then they they probably will. And then those who are unwilling to game the system are the losers. Basically, they might not get promotions. They might uh, they might they might be able to live with themselves internally and not sacrificing their own principles. But they will be de facto punished and and sanctioned by the system that kind of actually privileges uh, gaming uh, to a certain degree. Uh, You can probably succeed by being very good as well. Uh, Nobody is saying that this is not possible, but you can equally well succeed by by being unethical or just merely unsolidaric. If you you clean a lot of space for your own research and you push uh, teaching loads onto very likely women, <laughs> for instance, then you find likely far more likely to succeed. So, what do you think of this uh, of this kind of uh, relation between gamification and gaming uh, in in this kind of ethical sense? No, cheating is probably an element of uh, every kind of game and uh, even of professional sports as we unfortunately are aware of so uh, if there is a game you uh, have an incentive to game the game kind of Uh, and uh, in contemporary society I would say those who are capable and willing to play strategically uh, to um, kind of find out what works and and what maximizes your impact in various ways, uh, then uh, indeed those people are often the winners and uh, others can live uh, more easily with their consciousness and their principles. But ultimately, your consciousness and your principles are not going to serve you dinner. So uh, there, there is an incentive to kind of disobey 
your consciousness. And uh, that's behind everything from, uh, you know, academics uh, publishing in very dubious journals just to boost their total number uh, of articles to, I don't know, influencers uh, buying fake likes on Instagram and and, uh, similar things. Uh, So it's um, all about the capacity to determine how to best game the algorithm uh, that structures a particular activity and then uh, going with that knowledge. Of course, some of the um, big platforms, they are changing their algorithms routinely. So even if you know what works at a particular time, it might no longer work in the future. So you need to uh, continue being inventive. But ultimately, I would say the current environment, it does favor strategic players over those who are kind of more authentic and natural, even though authenticity is a big buzzword, but that authenticity is also usually strategic. Indeed. And, and uh, what, does it, what consequences does it have for uh, what we discussed earlier, namely data bias? If, uh, if most of the data that is being produced is also produced with an intention to game the algorithm, then you kind of add another particular layer. It's not only the bias in the, in, in the data itself, let's say, but, 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 but it is systematically being skewed by users for their own kind of interest, whatever that may be. Uh, or whatever kind of imaginary they may have of the algorithmic architecture, right? People try to constantly figure out uh, how how do I boost my score on this? How do I increase the number of followers? What what works? What doesn't work? So so they are constantly trying to kind of navigate also actively uh, this kind of architecture and and uh, precisely cheat it. Uh, but what what consequences does it have for how the architecture is then being built and rebuilt and constant continually changes? Because uh, that's also I think an interesting thing to think about maybe that is one of the reasons why simply collecting more data is not going to solve our problems because the data that we're going to collect is not necessarily 100 representative um, of course uh, there are things that we intentionally reveal about ourselves that we are because we are aware that particular elements, particular behaviors are monitored and turned into data. And then there's the metadata that's being created, which is very difficult to fake and uh, which uh, can produce kind of more accurate insights because it uh, reflects not necessarily what we are doing, but how we are doing it. Um, And and that is uh, an element of data collection, which I would say is even more sinister because it operates completely in the background. Usually it's left outside various user agreements and and other documents, which we don't read anyway. Um, So um, it, it, it's something uh, that uh, I think also adds an extra layer uh, to the problem uh, because uh, there is one element um, of the game that we can turn in our favor to some extent personally, but then probably with negative societal consequences because uh, we further skew the data overall on particular groups. 
Um, so, for example, if we artificially inflate the uh, data count on, on our papers as academics, then we're kind of screwing the situation up for our colleagues because they now have to compete against artificial numbers. So, so that, that's one element. But then there's also this other element where loss of activity is going on behind our backs that we are even aware of and uh, uh, that we have no way of keeping track of, of being aware about. Um, and uh, that can also affect our lives in uh, unexpected ways. So to some extent, this cheating thing can be seen as almost empowering because we know uh, that uh, we are being monitored and we are making the best of it. But at the same time, uh, there's also uh, this underlying disempowering element uh, that's uh, going on behind our backs that we simply cannot deal with in any meaningful way. Indeed. Uh, and this speaks to the opacity of these systems, uh, right? And one thing that is related to this, I think, is uh, is the question of decision-making within such systems. One thing is that we discuss automated uh, decision-making and even governments are now distributing certain social benefits based on automated decision-making and so forth. Um, and, and of course, uh, we even are discussing uh, lawyers maybe being replaced by, uh, by some kind of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, at least in... Uh, easier uh, kind of cases maybe and this also relates to the consequences for human and professional judgment right uh, what does it mean to to kind of make a decision in a system that is already kind of shaped by this algorithmic arch architecture right say if you for instance are a medical doctor and uh, you have um, let's say a uh, a system that uh, checks the, the X-rays and uh, that is particular field of artificial intelligence, which is, which is, uh, which is, uh, which has quite good results and so on. And you're an, you're an maybe a young doctor. Your farmer may be likely to agree with the algorithm, right? Or to, or not the algorithm, but with this kind of decision upon the diagnosis, for instance, right? Because you don't have as much experience as a, as an older medical doctor, for instance, who can say, well, I, I override this, uh, this, uh, this diagnosis because I really think this is something else for whatever reason. No, I'm not a medical doctor. This is just a, just an example, but, uh, but, uh, but, but what happens when you then kind of see this uh, this algorithmic decision as a, as a kind of having your own back free, right? You can always refer to it and say like, well, but the algorithm suggested that. So so there must have been something. We don't know what it is. Maybe a black box uh, algorithm. We don't know something goes in, something comes out. We don't know really how on what basis. Uh, but you kind of can have your, have your back free and you, you can kind of rely on it to a certain degree and and this we see also in these kind of policing technologies right it was like well i had a reason to check the person because look uh, he had a high risk score and so on so so you can kind of delegate your judgment to the kind of algorithmic device let's say or or uh, or or a certain product uh, and 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 kind of act if you act in alignment with it you kind of relieve the relieve your conscience as well even if uh, the consequence would have is 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 kind of uh, unacceptable in a, or would be unacceptable in a different system right 
So, uh, and indeed, you can say that professional judgment often fails, that human judgment fails. And this is also the selling argument for these technologies, right? That, uh, well, we have so many instances of professional and human judgment failing that maybe the technology would be better at deciding certain things. Uh, so, so this is extremely, I think, complex and problematic uh, but we are seeing a move towards these kind of automated decisions. Uh, so what do you think does it mean for both professions and, uh, and also politics, I would say? I think it is part of this broader discourse about and uh, probably shift towards greater automation. So that started with this entire discourse on Industrial Revolution 4.0 and similar stuff that... No, everything is becoming or will become automated uh, in the near future, and that's more efficient and stuff like that. Uh, and in terms of submitting to algorithmic judgment, mm-hmm. there, there is an already uh, well-proven and well-demonstrated tendency in humans to kind of submit to machinic judgment and medical conditions and in, in, in other conditions as well. Uh, where we think, well, you know, if, if the system has spotted something we haven't, then probably the failure is in us. In some cases, it, it, it might be the case. In other cases, it might not. Um, but uh, we kind of shed responsibility in many ways. And, and I think that is also an emerging debate, or at least uh, an area that needs to be discussed very urgently within uh, the domain of AI ethics, for example. So what's the ethical what's the ethical balance between human judgment and algorithmic judgment? And uh, can I really uh, kind of relieve myself of ethical responsibility in decision-making by simply saying, no, the algorithm did it. I didn't uh, make the wrong decision. The algorithm did it. Uh, and so when in doubt, we may actually be more tempted to do nothing ourselves and then uh, just refer to uh, to machine judgment to kind of avoid responsibility ourselves. So what does that do for human conscience, for the status of a human person as a moral agent? Do we lose our moral agency simply because we can delegate it? Um, or can we? Delegated. Does uh, the responsibility remain with the human still? Maybe. There's no good answer to that, but uh, this is a debate that uh, we need to have. Um, We have it to a certain extent, but we certainly need to have more of it. Okay, so I think that this kind of, uh, we have raised a lot of questions (laughs) throughout this conversation. And uh, and uh, I would just uh, say that what we kind of see here emerge is a kind of very particular vision of the world and the ways in which it should be uh, both understood and governed, right? Uh, there's a particular uh, kind of epistemology that we rely on. Uh, and we see that the qualitative uh, <laughs> social and sciences and humanities have very little to say in this vision. Uh, and this vision is uh, backed by enormous power and wealth of tech corporate giants, but also, but it is also a vision kind of underpinned by a hybrid of more or less compatible approaches to the social 
or rather approaches that tend to eliminate the social, <laughs> I would say. Uh, many of these technologies appear to rely on kind of naive positivism. And we've been touching upon that with this idea of data neutrality and of faith in, in data that is that are imagined as neutral and pure. There is almost this kind of idea of purity, right, that underlies this, uh, you know, the, you have to clean the data in order to, to harmonize them. So there's this, this ideology of purity and harmony underpinning this, uh, along with kind of psychology and behaviorism that are driving uh, these, uh, these technologies, uh, this kind of behavioral nudging and so on, which again align with this individualistic logic of neoliberal capitalism, uh, and this logic of optimization, this logic of self-interest, which again we've touched upon in, in relation to this moral economy of fraud, and this kind of idea of endless effectivization, cost-effectiveness, optimization, and so on. So all these kind of technologies of power are related to, to this kind of idea of the individual uh, or that can be personalized, optimized through quantitative measures, basically. And so what does emerges is a kind of data-driven vision of scientific management or a new form of Taylorism, of technocratic global governance, where kind of private corporations and other transnational actors have disproportionate power in determining the very conditions, and as you call it, the choice architecture, uh, in which we can or cannot make decisions and have or do not have agency, are empowered or disempowered. Uh, so I'm wondering, uh, just for a final question, is there a space for democracy uh, in this system? And, and these kind of old-fashioned uh, rights uh, notions that seem to be unsettled uh, every day now through this kind of real-time uh, governing. And, I, I, and my worry is uh, that this type of governance where, this, where we see this uh, increasingly fast responsiveness to, to data to, to uh, the data picture changes, so the regulation changes, this sort of pandemic governance, that it will kind of become normalized as a new form of, uh, as a regular form of governance and, and, and a sort of responsive, personalized e-governance where maybe we can vote every two weeks on a person we no longer like in the political establishment, right? Where <laughs> something like that has been now being imagined with these uh, non-fungible tokens that in the future they could be used as part of this e-democracy and just vote people out on a very short notice. So so what kind of future do these kind of uh, old-fashioned uh, now, as it seems, ideas have, do you think? is going to be significantly challenged here uh, because what democracy necessitates is uh, this kind of spontaneity and chance and randomness to some extent, openness to uh, all of those random experiences of everyday life. And uh, we do see less and less randomness in this world uh, simply because um, everything is now part of some kind of technological trend. Everything is part of some uh, data flow that can be analyzed and, and patterns within that can be found. Uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, kind of direct democratic consequences, I think there are several uh, issues to be considered. Uh, the first one is the very kind of structural condition for decision-making on the part of the electorate, uh, because um, our decisions are uh, increasingly opened uh, for management, 
in terms of uh, choice architecture, uh, as you correctly identify. So, you know, if uh, we uh, see, well, let's say, for example, the Facebook news feed as a crucial source of information, which it is, uh, then uh, the choice that Facebook's own algorithms uh, make in terms of uh, which kinds of news are displayed to which individuals based on their data, based on their interactions with other individuals, their connections, friend networks, and so on, uh, that's already um, an important factor uh, in determining democratic processes, because if I'm consistently exposed to uh, just one kind of information, which I'm predetermined to like, uh, because that fits my ideology, and any competing information is um, shown just in the context of, let's say, somebody sharing it and saying, you know, what a ludicrous proposition or something, um, which happens in homogenous networks, uh, then, uh, you know, I'm only further radicalized within my own ideology. And this is where societal polarization uh, really kicks in. So that's one element. Another element is uh, changes in political leadership. Uh, because political leaders uh, don't really have to lead anymore, if by leading we mean kind of trailblazing a path for a particular plan of action that they themselves want to promote or believe in, um, or something along those lines. You just uh, need to have sufficient audience data uh, to know what they uh, think about what they desire and, and then kind of speak it uh, into existence. And that's it. So it's at the very best, it's leading from behind. Uh, at the very worst, it's uh, just, uh, you know, being a ventriloquist who speaks for a puppy or for a puppet. Uh, and and um, that, that, that's basically it. Um, and then uh, the third thing that I'm probably the most worried about um, is this uh, predictive capacity that's built into uh, today's um, algorithmic structure. And uh, I think um, in the future, and I'm afraid it's going to be quite a near future, uh, we are going to stop voting for people. We are going to vote for the code. Uh, we're going to vote for... Uh, uh, particular algorithms uh, that are intended to solve particular governance functions. Uh, there may still be individuals behind them, so to some extent we may be voting for individuals, but um, effectively we will have prediction systems that will make otherwise political decisions uh, just based on data patterns and uh, on, on their inbuilt algorithmic logics. And uh, maybe at first we, we will have a say which algorithms uh, are going to run us for the next four or five years, let's say. But uh, in the future, it's going to be just, you know, greater optimization. So again, this kind of optimizing ideology uh, where uh, everything uh, must be better uh, everything must be more efficient. And, uh, you know, if somebody says, well, okay, you don't really need to vote because based on your data, we already know whom or what you are going to vote for, then, you know, it's the ultimate disenfranchisement that we're going to have. And um, 
I think there's a high likelihood that we are actually going to have that kind of thing. Are we approaching in this sense a kind of a Chinese uh, social credit system without uh, really thinking about it? So that the kind of technology in that sense imposes the totalitarian logic on, on its own without the necessity for the government to be totalitarian, <laughs> right? That the technology itself kind of brings these premises. I mean, creditworthiness, trustworthiness. It's a short step for all these technologies to kind of manage and sort people in certain categories which have access to certain things or not. You're already punished by, you know, having done something, said something and so on. Uh, in the, Maybe in the Chinese system, this is kind of a top-down uh, uh, intended uh, process. But here we see these kind of technologies proliferating uh, you know, almost ad hoc from one company suggesting this kind of solution and another company, another one, but the results are very similar. Uh, and, and now during the crisis, we have to relate to an enormous amount of new applications, right? In order to, I don't know, now every, every single shop is closed, so you have to have a delivery uh, system. And then these kind of apps are also proliferating, right? So, so you're sharing information, not like maybe in China with kind of centralized system, but with with the decentralized networks of, of these kind of data providers. So, so it kind of, maybe the conditions are a bit different, uh, but the results will be similar or even uh, more confusing. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, but um, this, is, uh, this is certainly kind of uh, worrying uh, for, for the future. <laughs> In China, at, at, at least, uh, you know that there's a centralized authority who's doing stuff, and therefore uh, it's kind of identifiable uh, as such, as this totalizing agent. Uh, whereas uh, what we see today in Western societies, it's uh, to some extent uh, better because it's decentralized, and at the very least, there's no central authority uh, that uh, collects all of our data and therefore is capable of uh, complete control of everyday life. So no, we're, we're still lucky in that respect. Uh, but at the same time, it's uh, much more difficult to identify and uh, therefore much more difficult to resist. Well, I presume it's extremely difficult to resist anything in China, probably next to impossible. Uh, but uh, it's uh, impossible just for different reasons in, in, in contemporary Western societies where uh, we uh, simply uh, participate um, in those datafication and data centralization processes uh, through our everyday behaviors without even giving it a second thought. Uh, and given how uh, concentration happens within technology sectors, um, some kind of uh, private business-based concentration of governance functions and of datafication is bound uh, to take place. I mean, uh, look at every major technological sector. Now, you know, this could be operating systems, this could be manufacture of uh, technological products, uh, this could be, I don't know, office software, whatever. Uh, we usually have one, two, maybe three dominant companies in all of those areas. Um, and uh, I think as we move forward uh, with uh, um, greater 
integration of all kinds of digital uh, functions uh, within within uh, single systems, be it uh, um, digital assistance, be it uh, maybe in uh, the near future some kind of augmented reality control interfaces and so on. Um, increasingly, those will be operating systems that run the entirety of our lives. And therefore, we will be sharing the entirety of our data with relatively uh, centralized authorities. It's just that uh, in the West, those are going to be private authorities, and probably there will still be several providers competing against one another. So we will not technically end up living in totalitarian societies. Uh, but the level of centralization and, and the level of knowledge and uh, predictive capacity and, and therefore power um, is likely to uh, remain quite uh, similar. It's just it's not going to be driven by um, explicit uh, desire for control and political power. It's going to be driven by the desire for profit. So um, different means different end goals and different tools, but some of the actual structural elements, they are not that dissimilar. Do you see any possibility of uh, resistance at all? Not immediately, uh, actually, uh, partly because, uh, well, this uh, datafication drive, it's... Um, kind of playing on some of our instincts. Um, and uh, it's also a self-reinforcing uh, procedure because uh, we're kind of talking about uh, uh, things like automation. We're talking about artificial intelligence and how we're all going to be replaced by artificial intelligence and so on. And then in parallel, uh, there's this discourse about the only way not to be replaced, not to be outpaced, is going to be, you know, having more data, having a brain-computer interface, having some kind of other augmentation uh, added to you, which will be very helpfully provided by some tech company. Uh, so it's a self-reinforcing uh, thing. And um, we are kind of just carried by this torrent of ever-increasing developments, ever-increasing speed of stuff, and therefore we have no time to pause for breath, to uh, kind of stop and think about uh, what's going on, to look at it from a perspective rather than kind of just to run and run and run and run uh, and be uh, carried by, by, by this uh, stream of technological innovation and uh, pressures of every day because you, so you always need to improve some kind of score of yourself and, and therefore you don't have the time to think about it. Um, so um, I am not particularly hopeful. Um, well, I'm generally quite a pessimistic person, so I might be biased in that way, uh, but I'm not particularly uh, hopeful um, about future developments. We may kind of end up developing and, uh, and, and, and adapting uh, ourselves to lives in, in this uh, hyper-technologized and hyper-datified uh, environment. I mean, one thing that we learn looking back at the history of humanity that we have adapted to almost anything, 
So probably we will still adapt and find ways to uh, lead lives that are happy. I'm not just sure that those lives will be, at least from our today's perspective, very meaningful. And on that note, I think we can <laughs> conclude. It was wonderful talking to you, Ignaz. Uh, so this was Ignaz Kalpakas, the author of Algorithmic Governance, Politics and Law in the Post-Human Era. Many thanks for chatting with me. Okay.